Hello, fellow innovators. This is Patrick Emmons. And this is Shelley Nelson. Welcome to the Innovation and Digital Enterprise Podcast, where we interview successful visionaries and leaders, giving you an insight into how they drive and support innovation within their organizations. Today, we're going to be talking with David Hogue. David is currently the Senior Vice President and Chief Information Officer for the OCC here in Chicago. For the last 18 years, David has been working with trading and clearing systems. During that time, he witnessed rapid growth and change in that market. He also developed skills to build teams and solutions to scale with the growth. The business demands require high-performance solutions that can scale to meet very high and variable transaction loads while meeting extremely demanding SLAs. Just recently, David, you were selected for an Orbi Award as Corporate CIO of the Year by the Chicago CIO Leadership Association. One of our other finalists, Karen Fedison, was recently on the podcast as well. So welcome, David, to the show. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Can you please uh, share with us, uh, David, and our listeners a little bit of background about the OCC and your role and really uh, the environment you're creating there? Sure. Uh, the OCC is the world's largest equity derivatives clearing organization. Yeah, I know that's a mouthful, but in reality, what it is, is every option that trades in the market. An option is a future promise. So I may offer to buy IBM from you at a fixed price at some future date, and that's an option. You know, that uh, commitment is something that I have to honor or, um, or you have to honor depending on who gives that promise away. And we're the organization that stands in the middle and makes sure that all those promises are uh, upheld. Uh, as a clearing organization, we're the backbone of 17 different futures and options markets. That is a very large transaction volume that we process every day. Uh, it's highly variable because highly dependent upon whatever random tweet Trump makes that day or uh, <laughs> if something's going on in North Korea. Uh, and that drives significant swings in our volumes. And so our solutions need to be able to scale uh, at a moment's notice while still ensuring that we can open markets uh, the next day. And so you'd understand in that environment that it's a very much an applied technology firm. You know, technology is the backbone that uh, ensures that the overall uh, equity derivatives industry uh, operates effectively and smoothly on a daily basis. I'm really excited about having you on. The, uh, I know our previous conversation, uh, well, before we got started recording, you know, we talked about some of your startup days as well. Uh, so before you were with the OCC, uh, your next tier education. Yes. Uh, before that, you were with the CMA group. But uh, I think one of the topics I'd like to talk about, kind of kick it off, is that transition, right? Sure. Moving from from next year into into the OCC, and you know some of the challenges that you you some of the lessons learned. I think we all realize innovation is about learning. Sure. Right? So let me uh, start with. So I was at CME in charge of all the clearing technology there for many years. Uh, and then left that organization, very large team, to join a startup. I was the first technology person who joined the next tier uh, company. And so I had the responsibility to build a technology team from scratch. No longer did I have an HR department recruiting a brand, anything else <laughs> I wish to go out and, and get help with this. So uh, when I'm drafting my first uh, employment contract, you know, I have to write that and get somebody to review it. It's, uh, it was a whole new game for me. I've always been a hands-on 
leader. I continue to be a hands-on leader, but this was taking it to a whole new level. Uh, but I'll tell you that transition from CME to the startup, there was one thing that I didn't know until I was in that space, which is, you know, at CME, having spent a large part of my career there, you learn to, to work in the lanes that you have, right? So I was in charge of clearing technology. I was responsible for that. And you did collaborate with others across the organization. Uh, but largely, I focused on making my team, the people who reported to me, as, as effective and as efficient as they possibly could be. You know, I focused on, you know, our engagement score. I focused on our productivity. And I really spent a lot of time making sure my team was uh, a highly functioning and effective organization. So then I joined a startup. And now my team isn't the people who report to me. It's the entire company. And all of us need to be rowing the same direction. Uh, and at first, I kind of had a mindset of oh, build the technology organization to serve this business entity called Next Year Education. But very quickly, I realized that wasn't enough. I was... HR, I was payroll, I was the guy who did the network closet. I, you know, you, you're involved with everything when you're in a startup and everyone needs to pull that role. And so it really, uh, I, I credit that position for educating me on the importance of thinking beyond your immediate problem domain and what are the problems of the business and how are we going to market and how are the tools that I'm delivering fitting into that broader ecosystem. Uh, so when it came to time for me to leave startups and get uh, a job at OCC. You know, I brought that mindset with me. And I really think that time I spent working in startups was a big mindset shift for me that is just as applicable in the OCC realm as it is probably in most companies. That if you focus on the customer, you focus on the external entities, you focus on the problems your business has, and then you look at the solutions you can bring to bear and how you can help your peers across the network achieve whatever that business outcome is that helps our customer. That's really the goal that we all should bring when we go to the workplace day in and day out. Uh, I no longer consider my team to be the people who work for me. Uh, now my team is really my broad peer group and we're all working together and we have a lot of people in the organization who look to us as leaders to ensure that we are doing what's right for our customers doing what's right for our business and and then ultimately doing what's right for all of us who, who work within that organization. Is that uh, that focus on customer, right? On adding value, right? Giving the ability for customer to pull value, you know, as, as a technological leader as part of that. Yeah. Is that is that one of the challenges of, as you're working with people who, as a, as a person with a degree in computer science and mathematics, was not aware of the business Sure. Aspects as we're building software and doing these things. That's right. And that's not unusual. Historically, there was a very bright separation between, a uh, bright line separation between the business and the IT organizations. Uh, I think in today's world, you look at the success that the agile development processes have had. The big reason for that is that it brought the customer and the IT staff closer together. It's no longer you know, send a proxy to go and elicit requirements from a business user. And then that proxy comes back and he talks to the developers because invariably you end up with telephone game. You end up building what was asked for, not what was needed. Mm -hmm. You know, and the individuals who are involved, uh, there's a thousand micro decisions that get made every day by everybody in every organization. And not everything rises to the surface where you say, hey, hold on. I don't understand what you're asking me to do. So a lot of times people... Uh, appropriately so, make decisions on the fly to keep the project moving forward and keep things going along. 
Uh, but in that lies where the bulk of the problems occur. You know, you do need to have contextual awareness of, well, what's this solution doing? How's it going to affect our customers? How am I contributing my part to that bigger picture? Because then when I'm making all those many micro decisions that I need to make and I'm accountable for and empowered to make, uh, they're done with the right context and they're done with the right outcome in mind. I'm no longer focusing on uh, a very narrow view of the world, i.e. just how do I make my software structure properly or how does the code be clean, or which is are also important characteristics, uh, but also how does this fit into the bigger problem we're trying to solve? And when you have that lens, I think that's where you end up with the uh, most elegant solution, and by elegant, the simple solution you could possibly have to achieve the business outcome. So, David, I, I love that. It just goes to show that we never stop learning, we never stop growing. And just curious for our listeners out there, you know, some of the folks that work in these very large organizations, what if they said, well, you know, David, that just wouldn't work where I am. We're a company of, you know, X thousand employees. We're very siloed, can't operate that way. What would be your suggestion on how to get? started in managing the way that you just described? Sure. I mean, I, I had a very similar question actually from my own team earlier today, uh, ironically. And so even though OCC is moving this direction, we're still a company in transition. Uh, we historically have maybe traditional waterfall style methods and we're moving to this new approach. And so the teams are a mixed state of adoption of some of these practices. And so, you know, the, my response to this was, was look, the, the reality is, is everybody, the business sponsors and their own silos, the technology teams, we all want um, a successful release. We all want to delight our customers. And, you know, there's a great uh, book I read that talks about the joy at work and, you know, it characterized joy as, you know, delighting our customers. I think it's sometimes we forget, even the technologist who's writing that code, there's nothing more fulfilling that motivates you than to have your customer go, this is this is the problem I needed solved. This is the solution I needed. You know, we all have that mindset. So I think if you start approaching the individuals involved in your projects and your teams and say, look, I'm asking these questions about business context, awareness, engagement with my business users, because ultimately our goal is to produce the best product that meets their needs and will delight them at the end of the day. You know, you may find you get folks who are stuck in their way and they're they're going to resist it. And that's going to be the challenge. Um, and there's no easy answer for that, unfortunately. Uh, but if you if it's characterized as this is a way for us to be even better at what we're already doing good, I think that you can find opportunities for incremental improvements all over the place. I think everybody's willing. Most people I've encountered are willing to take a small amount of risk, a small amount of change to see if it can improve things. And so... You know, maybe you can't totally transform your organization to an agile shop overnight. Uh, nobody can, so don't feel bad about that. But the many small incremental wins you can get that start advancing you towards that outcome, you know, that's where you'll really get transformational change. It happens in, the, in many really small changes. Maybe tomorrow it's we're going to use JIRA and we'll start tracking our backlog of tickets. Um, I'll share a story if, if uh, you know, for a moment. Uh, one of my teams in my when I was uh, years ago, the dev manager came across Jira, which is widely used today uh, for tracking work and managing backlogs of to-do lists and executing in an agile way. But it wasn't used within the organization at the time that one of my my staff members uh, came across it. So what he did is he went out, took his own credit card. You know, they had a ten user license that was fifty bucks. Put his own credit down, bought a ten user license 
brought it in and started using it just for his own team. And, you know, the, his work there yielded immediate benefits to their ability to manage their, their workload, uh, make, pri- make commitments, manage their priorities and communicate with their uh, stakeholders. So it was a guy working in isolation, had an idea, brought it into a shop, started leveraging it right away. Uh, I'll tell you, that germ of an idea ended up becoming the foundation upon which the entire CME organization now manages their work and drives their priorities. And, and I know this story is true across many companies as I've talked to others about it. So, you know, that that willingness to put your neck on the line, in this case, my buddy who put the $50 on his credit card to bring that thing in and just try a little bit of innovation when it makes them excel above their peer group, wildfire. Everyone starts adopting because everybody wants to be better at what they do. We all want to come in and delight our customers every day. And so when you see a shining example, you tend to gravitate towards it. That is an awesome story. I think there's some things we got to talk about as well about creating a culture where people feel empowered to do that. Because I know you said that happens all the time. I don't think it happens as often as it doesn't. (laughs) Yes, I agree. Uh, So, you know, how do you create a culture where somebody is going to take their credit card, you know, and ask for forgiveness instead of permission? Because I think everybody who's listening now has had that bad manager who's given them that coaching lesson of like, hey, rather you ask for forgiveness than ask for permission. Yeah. So you're abdicating leadership. That's great management style you've got, right? (laughs) You've now delegated responsibility. Wow, you're a genius. Uh, But like, that person did it, right? Mm-hmm. And they did it with the idea that I'm trying to do what's right. But that also means that they lived in a world where they knew punishment wasn't going to be met enough. And I think we all know that there's organizations where success leads to punishment, sure. right? And so what are some of the things that you're doing to create that environment where somebody, as you call him, your buddy, right? Who's yes. probably two or three he was, steps yeah. down <laughs> yes. the tree from you, but he's your buddy, <laughs> Right. <laughs> Yes. How does he take that action? Uh, you know, so I think there was some history there. Uh, we worked together, at, you know, in the same organization, but years prior to that event uh, and a very small team. I was managing a team of three or four people at this point. And, you know, I would have our weekly team meeting and I would go around the room and I would ask them. I said, well, what did you do to improve uh, this organization in the last week? And I can tell you, the first time I asked everybody that, they thought I was joking. They were like, what is this guy? You know, why is he asking me this? You know, I, I, oftentimes I got no response or a kind of a, a smart alecky response, you know, to that inquiry. Uh, but every week I'd ask that same question. And I think after about a month, they said, holy cow, this guy is not going to stop asking me. I better get some good answers. And so back to my point earlier, you know, one guy came in with a good answer well, the next week, the other folks were like, I, I got to have a good answer. And so we just all started with this idea that it doesn't have to be that big bang, you know, transformational, blow everything up and do things different. There really is small little wins we can all take solace in on a week in and week out basis. Uh, and if we focus energy on it and make that part of our mission of continuous improvement, uh, I find that that has a compounding return uh, that when it becomes part of your organizational culture, you get this type of innovation that occurs in all walks of life that you don't even know what's going on. Uh, and because everyone's interested in it, there's a lot of 
information sharing because everyone's proud of what they've done. So they're proactively communicating and there's a lot of healthy competition and holy cow, I want that too. So what can I do and how do I improve on that? Uh, but it doesn't happen overnight. There was years and years of of kind of reinforcing this notion that incrementalism is okay. If I try something and it doesn't work, that's also okay. You know, the only thing I'm sure of is uh, I don't know if that new thing you're trying is going to make us better or not. Um, but I'm confident if you don't try it, we're not going to get better. You know, that's the kind of the mantra I used to tell people is, you know, try it, you know, and just fail fast. If it's not working, pull the ripcord. I, one thing I tried uh, once was in the same team is we tried a different organizational structure around some functional lines uh, to get specific. We tried to have a team that dedicated on user interfaces, so functionally separated, architecturally separated teams versus business aligned teams mm -hmm. and thinking we get some efficiencies and throughput gains and productivity gains in the process. Uh, but that disconnect from the business and not have everybody aligned to the same outcome to prove to be more problematic than we could overcome through process and uh, uh, interactions. And so after about five months of trying it, we said, Let, this isn't working. Let's go back to the organizational structure where we were. And I can remember people at the time were a little frustrated, right? Because here I just got a new boss and now five months later, you're moving me back to where I was before. And they stood up in front of the room and said, yeah, I thought this was going to make life better. Talking to people in the trenches, doing the work, it was clearly hurting in numerous ways. And so rather than let's power through it for another six months and hopefully things turn around, I made a decision. Let's pull the ripcord and try something else. And I think that made it, uh, since I had a very public, visible failure like that, I'm sure that didn't hurt some of the other people go, yeah, well, I can try something on a more smaller scale safely and confidently. So is that intentional sometimes? <laughs> I didn't intentionally fail. No, no but I mean, <laughs> it's like, I, 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 but I mean, is there an intentional uh, around making sure you show everybody that, you know, when you make a mistake, right? Because there's plenty of people want to bury the mistake, equivocate, yes. justify, right? Where it's like, okay, so I made a call. We learned. Right. I don't want to call it a bad call because like leadership in my mind is leadership is about making decisions. Right. Do you make decisions? End of story. That's right. Right. You don't get to pick right decisions or wrong decisions. You get to make decisions. And the only ones who aren't leaders are the people not making decisions. That's right. right? Everybody. There's a great scene in uh uh, Game of Thrones, where they're sitting on top of the wall and the old crow is talking to the Jon Snow and he's like, you can say it if you want, because he was supposed to like bury whatever. Yeah, so right. Like, the sure. giant showed up and it's like, oh, you can say I told you so. But really great scene, really uh, not appropriate for you know, <laughs> But I, I, uh, you can search it up. It's on YouTube. It's, sure. uh, but I always use that as like a... Yeah, so to that end, so there was a interesting... Um, study I, I learned about actually this morning. And uh, this woman, she had studied uh, highly effective teams, right? And so she, what she did is she was doing a different study first and found this kind of interesting anomaly, and I'll get to it in a second. So what she ended up doing is saying, let's study teams that are um, have good, strong relationship, good communication channels, proven well to work together, have good outcomes, and let's study them. And so she looked at operating rooms teams, mm. right? So folks who are doing procedures, medical procedures, and uh, they're tracking it. And so she studied these multiple teams and she's had some teams which were characterized as high performing, right? From all the characteristics I just mentioned. And she said other teams that didn't have those strong relationships or those strong communication channels, and they weren't as high performing as the other ones. Uh, she kept track of the number of, of um, 
that there was a measure that they had in the data, which was the number of errors that occurred during the procedure. And at first uh, analysis, she found out that there's definitely a statistical correlation of highly effective teams to the number of errors that occur during an operating procedure. But to her surprise, the teams that were highly effective had a much greater number of errors. And so why is that? What is it that those teams have much greater? You know why? Because those were the teams who had the comfort to acknowledge the problem, bring it up into the air, get the help of their teammates to resolve and correct those issues, where the other teams, which weren't as effective, were burying the problems. They weren't continuously improved. They were quietly suppressing them, and they weren't talking about them, and they were covering them up. And these were not errors where it's like the patient got killed. These were the many little mistakes Mm -hmm. that occur because we're all humans. We make mistakes every day. That's never going to go away. And it's not it's not never having the mistake. It's what is your environment that allows those mistakes to occur so that they're seen as learning experiences and growing experiences that you actually improve from, as opposed to thinking, hey, my job here is to be perfect and never have a mistake. And right. so therefore I got to sequ- you know, sequester them and hide them and keep them underneath the radar. It reminds me of uh, Toyota, right? The Toyota. Yeah, ride, right. Right? right. Where it's like uh, the Andon cord. Right. How many times a day are you pulling the cord for U.S. manufacturers? For anybody who doesn't know, it's very well documented. Toyota, they pull the sand on car cord. It stops the line. Managers flock to the problem. They rework processes, communicate and get back to work. That's, that's right. why Toyota's quality is so high. That's right. Just for the listening audience, I own two Toyotas. It's not an accident. <laughs> <laughs> so, but in the... Uh, it's very interesting that that openness about admitting that there's room for improvement, right? right. Where it's like, hey, how, how are we going to do this? How do we celebrate this? So Toyota stops the line about 300 times a day. And the average U.S. car manufacturer stops it less than once a day. So there's a lot, to your point, there's a lot of surgeons on those lines who are just keep putting screws in the wrong place. Right. You know, and it's like, and again... Keep uh, moving along. They that's keep, it. Yeah, we got right. the perception of, of success and not, not taking that opportunity to learn. Right. right? Exactly right. And you would imagine, like, in that case, I, I like the juxtaposition of, like, cars, big deal, right? But this is surgery, right? right. Their lives in the balance. And that's so right. So doing that math. So, you know, applying some of those philosophies from, like, a manufacturing or a, 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 an operating room environment, you know, how do you see applying that to – you know, somebody who's listening, who's a manager of a team or a director and thinking, you know, that sounds great. I feel like I am that type of person. I could I could carry the, the weight of that because it's not an easy decision to do in a silo. You know? No, it's really hard in, uh, in all fairness to acknowledge the challenge of this. I mean, I think that there are organizations where they're not, uh, you know, ready for that. They really can't accept mistakes. And in fact, you think about it, most companies are, are structured around that you're perfect all the time. And it's difficult to report that it's a mistake. So uh, I, I don't want to d- diminish the challenge of what I'm trying to say here and in any way imply that it's easy to, to have that type of culture. Uh, I will say, though, that you can't have uh, excellence if you can't check your ego at the door. If you can't have the point where everyone can have humility and bring that to the table and be willing to be wrong uh, and uh, and seek the best outcome of whether the problem is, you know, th- then you're going to be uh, stuck. I-, I look at OCC, you know, in our role, you know, we are the foundation for secure markets. This is our tagline, right? And uh, there's 17 different futures and options. It depends on us. We did 
uh, I want to say five and a half billion ish uh, contracts traded last year. So, you know, there's a big ecosystem here that we have to be supportive of. You know, when something doesn't work right, I can't have anybody saying, oh, no, no, don't look here. You know, we sequester that. I, we need everybody to go, this is what's wrong. This is why where it broke down. This is the procedure that failed us. You know, I'm very, uh, it's very important to recognize that everybody's bringing their best to work every day. I mean, really, everybody's trying to bring their best to work every day. I get there's challenges and not everybody's equal, but, you know, and the intent is positive. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I'm going to go to work and suck today. That just doesn't happen. Uh, so, you know, you know, so so if you can accept that as the foundation, and when something goes wrong, it's not about, you know, Billy or Susie or Arvon, right? It's it there's something else that was going on here. Uh, and so we need to be open about it and say, okay, that my process was was not necessarily going to be either the communication wasn't there or the data that I needed to be, make a good decision wasn't available or whatever. And if we can't have that um non-defensive dialogue about why things are breaking down, you're not in a position to continuously improve uh, and grow as we move forward. So I, I love that. What do you, uh, I always think about, as a software person, debugging your company, right? Yeah. Right? So everything, every company, like building company, like, uh, software, there's a lot of similarities to building a company and building software, right? There's inputs, there's outputs, there's functions, <laughs> there's properties, right? You're defining architecture of your people. So, and Deming talks about this all the time that, you know, it's like 92% of the time it's a process issue, not a person issue. Right. And uh, so is there a way, is there something that you do to debug, you know, your business when you're looking at some of these things and to take the, the, the assumption of guilt or blame or, you know, that kind of negativity that goes with it, the, the blame, right? Yeah. I think uh, from a leader's perspective, you've got to be uh, very careful on when, um, when you are doing this sort of root cause analysis and you're digging into it, and, you know, a lot of times I have folks who want to give me the whole history that led up to where we're at. Now, if that history is in the context of let's learn so we can figure out where the root cause is, that's great. But I'd say, you know, in my experience, 75 percent of that history is about how it's not their fault. Right. You know, and when I'm engaged in those interactions, I am quick to cut them off and say, I'm not blaming anyone. I don't care who's all of this. Let me start with that. Like, you know, I want an honest understanding of where the process broke down so that way we can have a systemic fix to this and not encounter this problem again. Uh, but it requires me to stay in. Like, I'm not I'm not going to put this on anybody's performance review. I'm not gonna, that's not what we're here about. I'm here today to understand what led up to this and all this history about why it's not you. Let's just shorten this conversation right now. I don't care about that. What are the elements, though, that led us to this outcome. Let's explore that in an open way. It's not about who, but rather what went wrong. Mm. Um, that's such a healthy uh, leadership style, David. I'm, I'm curious, have you had any mentors throughout your career that have helped you establish the way that you lead? Yeah, I'd say that early, very early in my career, my first uh, boss out of school was probably uh, the best thing that ever happened to me. Uh, I was one in, you know year in the job and you know, my boss uh, ends up quitting, right? So I'm 22 years old. I got a 28-year-old manager who's managing me. He leaves the organization. And I remember, oh, this old guy, 28, leaving the organization. Uh, <laughs> I, I know, right? Uh, yeah, so I, I do remember. And so um, 
So now, now I'm working for my boss's boss and I'm talking to him. He's like, look, he goes, you know, wow, this guy's out. We need you to kind of step in, you know, and just do what he was doing until we find somebody to fill that role. And so I stepped in and I started doing what the, my old manager was doing. And um, about three months later, my boss comes to me and goes, you're doing a great job. We're just going to have you keep doing this, you know? Uh, and I'm like, yeah, well, I'm only like a year and three months out of school. It's like, yeah, but you're doing fine. So great. Go ahead. Keep doing it. You know? Uh, so then you ask the question, but you know, I'm, I'm planning to take some vacation next week. And he's like, well, that vacation is your time. And, and so the point of this is it wasn't about him. It wasn't about the company. It was about me, the employee. Right. And really, the emphasis was on what do I need to be successful? How does he support me? How does he? Uh, and that orientation is kind of carried through throughout my management career. Right. And don't get me wrong. I've made many mistakes over the life and a lot of my learnings have come from uh, those mistakes. Uh, but, uh, you know, there has been this orientation towards, you know, supporting my teams, developing my my team members listening to them sincerely and trying to understand their situation because then I find that's when I'm best positioned to figure out how I can coach and develop them in their career. It is amazing how much of our, there's so much uh, things that happen to us at a younger age that impact us in ways that you just wouldn't imagine that, you know, and then you think about as, again, as we've become a little bit older than 28, you move past (laughs) that, you know, and on a daily basis, you know where you're doing that for other people right now, right? So mm-hmm. you know that there's somebody in your organization. Do you think about that sometimes when you're when you're are you aware of that? Like in in the moment? No, I, I'm not actually. <laughs> I, I, you know, I Maybe you will be tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, I mean there there are times I think where it comes up, but uh, I'd say that. Uh, the most rewarding moments, you know, one of the questions you get in interviews, right, is what's what's been your biggest accomplishment? You're doing, mm-hmm. right? And uh, my response may not be what people are looking for, but it tends to be, you know, I, I remember one time I'm, I'm walking through the loop in Chicago and uh, a gentleman who used to work for me and he was several low levels beneath me in the organization came up to me and he said, Dave, you know, I want to thank you. Remember that time we had this and this interaction and you said, hey, did you think about this, this and this and Cyrus Ways approach it? And I ended up doing this. And, you know, I'll be honest with you. I don't remember this conversation at all. You know, but, but this guy was like, that was so wonderful. He goes, it really helped me, you know, work through that situation and figure out how to move forward. And, and, uh, and I apply those learnings every day. And to me, it's like, holy cow, like that impact, that ability to help someone grow and develop and become those future leaders. Like to me, that has been my, my favorite thing when I reflect on my career that I'm most proud of is those individuals who've risen through their own organizations and other companies when they're no longer working with me. Um, I'm just, I couldn't be more proud of their accomplishments and uh, and then reflect on my own contributions to to. Uh, the guidance and help that maybe I did to me, that that's where I feel like has been some of my biggest accomplishments. That's great. That's awesome. I find that, uh, so I, I coach kids sports. I find that yeah. same thing where it's like, right. when you're with a team for long enough, right? Not just a year to year team, but a little bit longer and you've had an impact. Like uh, my eighth grade team was graduating for lacrosse and going into high school. And like last game of the year, you know, I'm saying goodbye to these kids. and some of them, you know, they're like, see a coach. 
And it's like, no, this might be the last time we see each other. And they're like, yeah, okay, take care. Yeah, right. Like, I'm on the verge of tears. And they're like, see you, bud. And yeah. I'm like, okay, well, hopefully you'll remember me someday. That's right. Well, uh, speaking to how, like, young things influence you, you don't think about. But uh, when I was uh, in college, my freshman year, I coached uh, uh, in a camp, a stay-away camp, you know, for kids that were uh, coming down the Champagne. And, you know, I did this for a couple of years in a row and it was great fun and I really enjoyed it. And, um, and then, uh, years later, I run into a kid who's now a senior in high school and he sees me on the floor and he comes up to me and he's like, ah, Dave, he goes, you know, and again, I didn't remember him. There was many kids who came (laughs) through the program and it was for a five day session. Right. It's like, Oh, I just wanted to say hi and thank you and all right, and, and it struck me at that moment uh, about how much I enjoyed coaching, right? And it was helping kids. Hey, I mean, I'm not, I'm not even out of college yet, you know, and then getting some of this feedback from from kids. And so I coached children's sports uh, as a young adult for years, just because I found before it, you had kids, before I had kids, just because wow. I found it as such a rewarding uh, experience. It's only when I started traveling for my job that that had to come to an end, but. Uh, I just found that that was such a neat thing. And so, again, back fast forward now, those years I spent coaching children taught me to learn how to deal with the obstinate child who doesn't want to listen to you, taught me that uh, you got to take praise uh, and criticism with a grain of salt because for every parent who loved me, there was a parent who told me I was doing it all wrong. <laughs> you know, And so you know, some of those early learnings, I think, really uh, served me well uh, throughout my career. Well, and the parent that loves you to the parent who hates you, if that's a one-to-one ratio, you are winning. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Generally, <laughs> generally that, not that generous. So the, you mentioned the obstinate child uh, who, who, you know, so you're talking about developers. That's, <laughs> that's a joke. I, I, as a developer, I have to, I'm required to say at least three anti-developer jokes. But I do think, so my, my, uh, my wife is a teacher. And I do have this concept that it's nowadays specifically the ability to teach is such a critical role to lead, Mm -hmm. right? Because everybody is learning faster than ever before, right? You're not going to get a team full of people who have been there, done that, right? Right. Your ratio of that is going to be worse than ever and worse than that. Everybody's looking to upskill. Everybody's looking to move, right? And the job of the manager and leadership is really to harness that and how do you get value for the business while these people are learning. And the idea that I'm going to wait till I have a perfect team is, is just a fallacy. If it was ever true, and I don't know if it <laughs> right. was. So right. is that something you're looking for with your leaders and teachers? It is. Uh, it's really hard, though. I'll tell you, you know, I'd say coaching has always been a part of the job, but I'll you know, I think one of the mistakes that I make on a regular basis uh, to this day is um, when you start working with folks senior in their careers and they've been around a long time. You know, I, I used to assume when I was a junior manager that they people didn't have the experience and knowledge. Right. Well, now I tend to assume, OK, you know, you've been in the software industry for 20 years. And so what what do I have to teach you a more exception based co- uh, coaching? And I find time and time again that that's a. Uh, a mistake that I'm making. I've got to um, do a better job at reaching out to my team and senior leaders across my organization or across the company as a whole and understand, well, wait, is something uncertain or unclear where, where, you know, that they, maybe they don't feel comfortable bringing up or raising that concern, you know, maybe more proactively on my part, reaching out and getting that input. And so every now and then I got these 
moments where I remember, oh, go out and ask, inquire, don't assume competence any longer. And it's not a way of saying that they're incompetent, let's be clear here, Uh, but rather, you know, there might be opportunities where I've got experience or knowledge or coaching opportunities that I should be applying them instead of assuming, okay, they totally get it, totally understand it, let me move on and work on the next problem. And so I think that's a trap that managers and managers need to watch out for is that, uh, you know, that, that coaching will be well-received and especially if you frame it uh, and lead it through inquiry and questions as opposed to dictates and direction. One of the things that I always wrestled with, especially in the coaching, you're educating, you're elevating, and you've got some folks that on the opposite side, they're newish. You know, you get the battle-tested, you know, veterans. They know what not to do. They may not know exactly what the right answer is, but they're like, don't touch that bar, right? Like yeah. That, you, yeah, that, yeah. You blow up there, right? That's right. Don't touch pure evil. <laughs> uh, so my question is, like, when you're balancing letting somebody be innovative in their role, right, and knowing that they're making a terrible decision, right, and you're like, do I let them touch the stove? Do I wake them up to this? Because it's it's almost a, a double-edged sword of I've actually had, let somebody go on a JavaScript framework I just shouldn't have let them do. And then when it all went bad, they're like, why didn't you stop me? Right. <laughs> that was actually how they responded to that. I learned a little bit about them that day. But yeah, so sure. what are your strategies when you're faced with that of like, do I give them leash? Do I let them know this, this is a bad idea? What's your thoughts? Yeah. I, I mean, it is very tricky, as you point out. Uh, I tend to err to the side of giving them the leash. You know, I will ask leading questions. Hey, did you consider this? Did you consider this? What about this aspect? So instead of saying, hey, don't use that framework, I'll say, well, what are the things that I've learned that create the path they're on to be not the path I would go, right? Mm-hmm. So focus on those issues and those those concerns as opposed to, hey, wait a second, this thing over here is much better, right? It's a, it's a, so, so my attempt is, is to lead the horse to water, you know, and say, and see if I can't get them to have the same uh, understanding of the challenges I had that I seem to have from my experience. But I do, if we go through all that exercise and they say, look, I still think this is the right way to go, uh, I'll tend to uh, let that go uh, with the mindset of there's a thousand ways to skin this cat, you know, and just because my experience led me down one path doesn't mean that someone else's experience, which is a different path, is wrong. It just might be a different way to reach that same kind of outcome. So then I'll try to step back, but then keep a more watchful eye on the progress and monitoring and see how those issues that I've identified are playing out. Are they turning into real problems in terms of uh, decision-making or productivity or effectiveness of the framework or complexity that's built into how things are getting done? Uh, or is it, you know, hey, wait a second, it's not the way I would do it, but it's just different. That's all it is. It's not any worse. It's not any better. It's in that kind of gray land of just another uh, tool and toolkit that we can pull from. So, that's generally how it is. You know, let people go, try to watch the mistake, bail them out if they do. Uh, and <laughs> have the rescue team at the, the ready. rescue team at the ready, you know. <laughs> so don't don't let it, you know, don't let them fail. It's right. one thing I try really hard to not get to that situation so that we can be in front of it. But back to my comments earlier, if you identify the problems early and you're failing early in the process, then it's an attempt at innovation that just didn't work out. Okay, yeah. now we'll do something else instead. And if you've created, like you said, the environment where somebody's okay with saying, 
crying uncle and just saying, okay, bad call. Yeah, bad, bad call. call. Right? It's okay. I don't have to ride this thing into the ground. My right. pride's not tied yeah. to this thing. Right? Yeah. Having that egoless environment no. is really, really tough. You know, there's a book, uh, it talks about the ideal team player. It says, humble, hungry, and smart. Totally. Smart being EQ, not uh, IQ. So yeah. Yeah, if you can get humble, hungry, and smart on your team, I think you'll be a very effective organization. Yeah, that's Patrick Lencioni's The Advantage. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's a great book. I, I really highly recommend everybody read it, uh, especially in modern um, where yeah. there's so much focus on like core values, right? Right. And the funny thing is most of the organizations that I see that are successful, they have different variations, but it really does come down to some of those three things, that humility, mm -hmm. right, of like being open and honest about things. The hungry part, I think, is also a critical part. Yes. So one of my my interview questions is, what's the biggest challenge you've overcome in the last six months? Right. Like people think that I've been told that's an unfair question to ask us. What if they didn't happen to run into a challenge? And my response is, people will find challenge. Right. If you're well, looking perfect, for, yeah, <laughs> you're gonna go find it. You know, you're gonna. Like, I just think about like anyway. So it's, I do think there's there's uh, that's a great book, and I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, so what are some of the other things when you're interviewing people? Is there any other like to help identify that, that perfect candidate? No, I don't think I have a uh, magic uh, elixir on that one. I think that you uh, do the best you can, but, uh, you know, and I do use behavioral-based interview questions to try to get an idea of what their mindset is and how they think. Uh, but, but on the flip side, you know, you get – one hour with somebody, an hour and a half, you know, maybe maybe collectively across your team, you get a total of 10 hours of time and then you make a judgment call on that. And uh, there's people that you work with for years and don't fully, truly know or understand. So, you know, to try to do that perfectly, I don't think it's a magic elixir. I think that you do, I do look personally for that humble, hungry and smart characteristics. Uh, I tend to look for learning mindsets and growth mindsets mm -hmm. as opposed to uh, fixed and rigid thinking. Uh, because I do believe that no matter how much experience you have or where your skill at, whatever organization you join, it's it starts with learning the first you know three to nine months that you're there because uh, learning is continuous. But just the process of assimilating into a new company is more listening than talking, uh, and having people understand that is important. The the analogy that um, I heard recently was: if you're a musician, you're joining a group of people who are playing music. You know, you can come in, sit down right away and start playing vigorously, right? But if you do that, I guarantee you're going to be off tempo, off rhythm, not fit the music that the other players are doing. If you're a musician joining the group, you're going to listen first. You're going to hear the bars. You're going to hear the style. You're going to listen to their beat. You're going to find it out. Then you'll join in and start playing your music along with it. Mm. You know, it's kind of like that when you join an organization. If you come in and you start swinging away or pounding those keys the moment you walk in the door you know, you're going to be off tempo with the organization and not really be able to achieve a greater harmony as a result. You know, you've got to listen first. That's a pretty interesting concept. I, uh, I'm a hockey fan. Uh, when uh, There's a story about when uh, Chris Chelios got traded to the Detroit Red Wings, right? The nemesis, right? Yes. And so uh, Brendan Shanahan was telling a story that, you know, he shows up. He's never been in the locker room before, at least in the home locker room, right? Yeah. Starts putting his gear in his locker and nothing's fitting. You know, like when you have your usual haunts yeah. and you've done the thing a million times and he's struggling to get the uniform on and he just, he just kind of sits back into his, his cube 
And he looks over, and there's Brendan Shanahan just smiling, laughing at you because you look like a clown. Yeah. And I did, like, you know, because a team is in concert, right? Yes. And then there's going to be a good while before Chris Chelios is going to be in concert with that squad. Exactly right. you know? Well, I appreciate you coming on today. Uh, it's been awesome. Obviously, a lot of great takeaways. If At a bare minimum, everybody listening should you know, walk into their Monday morning meeting and ask, you know, what can we do to make our deportment better this week <laughs> at a bare minimum, right? That's worth the price of admission right here, right now. So uh, I did want to say thank you so much for, for sharing your experiences. Thank uh, you. It's been uh, a lot Shelby, of fun. I appreciate yeah. it. It's been great. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. We also wanted to thank you, our listeners. We really appreciate everyone taking the time to join us. And if you'd like to receive new episodes as they're published, you can subscribe by visiting our website at dragonspears.com slash podcast, or find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was sponsored by Dragon Spears and produced by Dante32. 